The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. Hello, Tom. How are you? Good, Father. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you again, too. Tonight, let's start with a question concerning uh, evangelizing here. So this viewer writes in and says that one of the things we are clearly called to do as Catholics is to spread the faith. However, when I do get the urge to evangelize to both lapsed Catholics and non-Catholics, I am often hesitant to do so. This is because after explaining the beauties of the true faith to someone, it is then necessary to tell them that now that they have embraced Catholicism, they can't simply go to the local parish because it's run by the Novus Ordo. Then I would have to explain what the Novus Ordo is and why they can't go to what appears to be the Catholic Church but is not. I fear that such a discussion with someone would completely confuse them to the point where they would just think that the church is one big mess to which they should have nothing to do with. Once upon a time, it would seem that it would be a simple task, but today we can't promote the faith without also mentioning the 50-plus years of crisis we are in and the difference between the true church and the conciliar church. Father, how do we best go about this under these circumstances? It is a dilemma. There's no doubt a, a dilemma presented by modernism, right? <clears throat> Situation we're in trying to bring people to the true faith without uh, yes, misleading them into adopting modernism, right? The modernist religion. But when we start with people, when we start talking to them about the faith, I think we have to make it very clear that we're talking about the traditional Catholic religion from the very beginning. <clears throat> I think we have to make it very clear to them that what is going on uh, in their modern parishes is not really Catholicism, not really the Catholic faith. And to say something simply that, well, I, I am a Catholic, and, but I am a, truly a traditional Catholic in the, insofar as I recognize the historical Catholic faith uh, of the ages, not the, the, modernist, um, the modernist imposter, you know, uh, since Vatican II. And let them know right up front that uh, there is a, uh, there's a question of, the, uh, of a modernist invasion. But uh, I think that if it's, prevented, if it's presented correctly, I think it will rather awaken their interest rather than drive them away, you know. If you make it clear that, uh, yes, I do practice the Catholic faith, and that is not what is in those modern churches now. If it's presented in a, in a, in a straightforward way, then I think there are people who actually find it rather intriguing and, and would actually start asking some questions about it. You could even mention, well, you know, I think... If I wanted to be a Protestant, uh, I certainly would not bother converting to the Novus Ordo <laughs> because I could just stay a Protestant, you know, either way. And in fact, the Novus Ordo actually says that. I mean, there are people who actually say that. Francis himself has said that to someone who came to him and asked about being a Catholic. He told them, stay where you are. If you convert, it'll, it'll underline, undermine ecumenism. <clears throat> so um, I think if you get somebody who's really... Uh, someone who you would talk to anyway about the Catholic faith, 
<clears throat> someone who you, you regard as being interested in the truth, having a certain love for the truth, I think you can present this to, the, to him right off the bat in, in such a way that it awakens even more interest, not chases him away. Uh, so, uh, you know, as, as the writer says, and it sounds like he speaks from some experience here, that he's, he's kind of left flat-footed in saying that he, uh, he's a, a Catholic, but then getting into the question of, of, of describing the difference between the so-called modern Catholicism that everybody, you know, takes for granted as Catholicism, and what we know for a fact really is Catholicism, uh, it, it maybe it gets a little it gets a little too into the particulars of it. Maybe he just needs to start out by stating flatly the principle that uh, you know Christ said that his church would always be under attack, and um, that is no true no less true today than it ever was. Now it's the modernists who are attacking, and they've taken over the churches and they've seized control of the Vatican. I think we just have to be uh, straight up front with all these people and let them know uh, where we're coming from because if we don't, they, they will be subject to endless confusion. Mm -hmm. The fact that we're, we're up front with them also, uh, it tells them that there's nothing to be ashamed of in this. You know, if, if we try to dance around the question a little bit, it makes it sound as though we're being evasive as though we're unsure of our position, as though we're almost ashamed of our position, as though we feel like we have to justify our position, but we really can't quite justify it. So, again, I think we just have to put it right, put it right on the table in front of them and say, look, uh, you've got a falsification of the Catholic faith and uh, going on right now, and furthermore, y you can see it. You know, all you have to do is actually look at the literature, the pre-1960 literature, Look at the pictures, <laughs> you know, look at the historical record and see if that matches what's going on now in those modern churches. And you can prove it to yourself that you're actually looking at two different religions here. Um, so, um, you know, if you, if you tell them this is the case and not only that, but it's not hard to, to uh, prove it to yourself. And, uh, you know, I'd be glad to show you the evidence if you, if you want to see it. I think that that love of truth you mentioned, I think that's really important because you can tell with some people, they just have this, this bias already against Catholicism. And it doesn't mm -hmm. matter anything you say. You mm -hmm. can try to explain things to them and they just, they don't want anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, I think for someone like that, the only thing you can do is pray for them. But there are so, mm -hmm. there are so many people who... Uh, like you said, when you when you try and explain things to them and try and and, and explain all of this crisis that has happened mm. over the last several decades, it really does pique their interest a lot of times, and that will encourage them to ask more questions. Mm. And so I think that you just it just really depends on the type of person that you're that you're uh, that you're conversing with there. It, it does. So actually, you're dealing with three different concepts. You're dealing with true traditional Catholicism. <clears throat> then you're dealing with what's going going on in the Novosota Church. Then you're dealing with, in a Protestant case, the Protestant uh, image of Catholicism that has been presented to, to the Protestants, okay? And uh, the, the Protestants ha ha ministers right, have painted this, this picture of uh, the church in the minds of their Protestant adherents as the, the Whore of Babylon and all kinds of terrible things, you know, the Scarlet Woman riding the beast and all the rest. There are a lot of... Uh, of uh, very much diluted fundamentalist, 
Protestants out there, I don't call them Christians, Protestants out there, who've been fed this, this, this line that, that the Catholic Church began with Constantine as a paganized version of Christianity. Uh, Ballface lie, demonstrably false, but there are a lot, it's amazing how many people actually believe this. Then you've got the Novus Ordo, and then you've got the true Catholic religion and Catholic faith. So you're have to con- going to have to contend with that. But, but, you know, when you're talking to people about these things, you find there are people who actually uh, just want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and that's all they care about. They love the truth. This is what St. Paul says in his letter, his second letter to the Thessalonians, his second epistle to Thessalonians, chapter 2, when he talks about the coming of the Antichrist, and he says that those will be, as it were, immune from the venom of the Antichrist and his delusions um, because they will love the truth. That's a characteristic of those who will not even fall victim to the Antichrist's lies. But when you're talking to people, often you find out that they cherish their prejudices. They do not want to find out that their prejudices are not true. They're too fond of them. Um, there are those who simply will not hear it because it's too inconvenient for them, because they realize that this would involve a uh, change of venue. Uh, this would involve driving an extra five miles or 10 miles or 20 miles um, or, you know, interrupt their bowling night or who knows what else. So they find it very inconvenient. Or they find that it'll make the, it'll, it'll disrupt their social life uh, because their friends will will not approve, whatever it might be, you know, there are all kinds of people out there of all kinds of motives to veto any attempt to present the truth to them. But there are always going to be those who, by the grace of God, love the truth. And when you find someone like that, of course, you know you find what we what we see as a pearl of great price, and hopefully you want to give them the pearl of great price. That's what they're looking for, the pearl of great price the treasure buried in the field. And uh, you can even mention this to them. You know, our, our Lord talked about the pearl of great price. Well, where do you get that? Well, you have to die for it. <clears throat> the treasure buried in the field. Well, how do you get that? You have to dig for it, okay? It's, it's not just handed to you. But um, if you're willing to dig, and if you're willing to dive, and you're willing to, to look for the truth, you can be sure that God will, will take that and put it in your grasp. So uh, those are the people uh, we really want to talk to. The rest will just use the opportunity to blaspheme. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So anyway, I commend this gentleman for trying here. But I think it'd be a good idea if he were to sit down and uh, sort of, uh, well, first of all, pray for guidance to the Holy Ghost, ask his guardian angel to guide him, um, and then uh, actually start typing out perhaps some some uh, statements he could make to uh, as, as openings, so to speak, so that he's not caught, again, caught flat-footed when something happens. In other words, it's not a matter of so much rehearsing what we need to say, um, but in a way it is, in a sense, because we have to think about uh, what we're going to say. A man who is going to say anything important whether he's going to get up and give a speech, uh, whether he is going to uh, propose marriage, whatever, whatever it is, he puts a lot of thought into it. You know, how am I going to say this? If he has to apologize to a friend, he's, he's offended gravely. 
uh, or if he's approaching someone who is an enemy of his and he wants to try to make peace somehow, the more serious the occasion, the more he's going to give thought to it, prayer to it, and try to make sure that what he says, he says, he, he uses the right words and he um, uses the right expression. He says the right words in the right way. This is just uh, normal human behavior when it comes to something of very great importance. So hearing what this gentleman has to say, obviously he does place a certain importance on this. It would behoove him to pray to God for grace and then actually kind of go run over in his mind, how can I, how can I present this? If I had one statement to make of uh, 17 words or less, if we get that much, sometimes we're very fortunate. How would I want to put this in such a way that uh, I, I sound very convinced that, that the traditional Catholic faith is the truth, but also distinguish it from what is going on in the Novus Ordo? You know? uh, and he might come up with three or four, he, I mean, uh, grace of God, might actually give him three or four statements that he could make to choose from, depending on the occasion, such that he's, he's not just uh, caught with his jaw, slack-jawed, not knowing what to say, and then for the next day thinking, oh, I should have said this, oh, I should have said that. You know, that happens to all of us, right? Well, the, it would be very nice if when we think we should have said this, we should have said that, we have that in mind when the time came, not the day after. Sure. That's what I'm suggesting he he asked for that guidance from God. Fair enough. I think that's great advice, Father. Speaking of the, the crisis in the church, we have a great email here from one of our most dedicated and, and faithful viewers. And uh, I'll attempt to summarize some of this here, Father, where basically he's saying that uh, throughout Vatican I and Vatican II, there was a lot of talk of the, the Sede Vicantis position and all of that, and it seems that Saints Robert Bellarmine and Thomas Aquinas are usually referred to in, in support of the idea of not following a pope that would lead the, the faithful into error. But this viewer would like to know why hardly anyone mentions the words of Christ addressing that same danger. And he uh, quotes St. Gregory the Great here and how Saint Gregory, Pope St. Gregory the Great uh, explains that the eyes of the church are the bishops, basically. And uh, he's, he provides a couple quotes uh, from scripture here um, where he says, for example, our Lord addresses the body of the congregation saying, if thy right eye is the occasion of thy falling into sin, pluck it out and cast it away from thee. Better to lose one part of thy body than to have the whole cast into hell. Uh, another one he provides here that says, and if thy eye is an occasion of falling to thee, pluck it out and cast it away from thee better for thee to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes when thou art cast into the fires of hell. So it seems that Christ is perhaps warning of this danger where the bishops, uh, the Pope, you could say, are, are the eyes of the church. And here we have Christ warning of how if the eye is leading us into sin, pluck it out, cast it away from thee. How would you, how would you comment upon that? Well, it's an interesting interpretation. I hadn't heard that interpretation before. He's bringing together various uh, statements. For example, St. Gregory's statement, uh, and then our Lord's statement about the eye, casting the, the eye. Well, when our Lord was speaking of this, there's no question that he was speaking to individuals who were tempted to sin. Okay? In other words, St. Gregory is not the one who's saying, 
Well, the, the bishops are the eyes of the soul, or eyes of the church, and our Lord said, pluck out an eye that leads you into sin. Well, he's referring to the church plucking the, the bishops out and pluck, casting them off if they are an occasion of sin. Uh, St. Gregory is not the one making that connection. This gentleman is making the connection. It's an interesting connection, but it is, it is supplying something that might be implied at best, that he's trying to relate that statement to the mystical body of the church, as it were, and say, okay, if this applies to an individual, that he should be willing to cast his eye from him if it's an occasion of sin, it also applies to the body of the church, you know, based on what uh, St. Gregory has says, the, the bishops of the eyes of the church. Now, we have to realize that St. Gregory is speaking, he's, he's using a metaphor here, right? Uh, he, the bishops are not eyes, okay? They're not eyeballs. They are people, right? They, they fulfill the role of the eye, as it were, is what St. Gregory is saying. The bishops fulfill the role of an eye in the sense that they give sight and they have clear vision. If, and and he, he's taking the metaphor that St. Gregory uses and saying, well, we'll take the metaphor here, we'll take the statement of Christ here and we'll apply it. The reason why I'm pointing this out is it's not an infallible statement that he's making. He knows that. He's making a, a statement, well, in my mind, this, what Christ says here, applies to what Gregory says here, metaphorically about bishops, right? And therefore, I guess the point that he's making is basically that if a bishop is leading souls astray, he must be, as it were, excommunicated, right? Anathema. The same, I gather he's applying that, I don't know that he says it explicitly, maybe he does, I haven't read the whole thing. I just heard what you just read here. I guess he's applying that to, let's say, Francis also, because if he is, if the bishops of the eyes of the church, uh, for it's already Francis in his position, uh, must be, so we must take him and cast him out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the rules pertaining to the church, you know, the church, well, it's not as it's so easy to say, okay, as to an individual, pluck your eye and throw it away, but the church, you know, considering this, let's just have to take him and throw him out. You know, there are rules about this. Okay, there are, there are lots of theological questions about all of this. Okay, I, I agree with the fundamental principle he's making here. I just think that one has to be a bit careful in interpreting Scripture in a certain way, putting together with a statement of the fathers, which is a metaphorical statement, and coming up with a, a theological conclusion. Which makes it sound like, well, of course, this is exactly what we should do: is throw them out. <laughs> um, um, you, you've read the whole statement there, so maybe you can shed some light on that. If I could, ju- just just this one this one paragraph here uh, in regards to Saint Gregory the Great and his work Pastoral Rule. Uh, he said he follows the interpretive uh, tradition of church fathers and explains that eyes of the church are the bishops. Those men are eyes, and they are placed in the face of the highest dignity of the body of the church. They have taken the office of observing out the road. From there, we have the office of the Holy See. And then he, he provides a quote from a song. Right, but see, he might be thinking of see as seeing, but it's not. that's not where it comes from. Gotcha. It comes from sedes. Or sedes meaning seat, like mm-hmm. the seat of the, the throne of authority, gotcha. the cathedra. Okay. So it's not a holy see insofar as they see. You know, 
Okay, I just thought. Uh, just that. this this one this one quote here from uh, from Psalm sixty eight where it says, "Let their feast be turned into a trap, a net to catch them." And there's ever the blind eye be theirs. So again, that that reference mm-hmm. of, of of the eye. And well, our Lord Tommy again talks about the blind leading the blind. They both fall into the pit, and that's all true, you know. So I think the gentleman is is on the right track. I don't see anything wrong with what he's saying at all. I, I just think that uh, to use that as, let's say. An argument is certainly fine. I mean, it points out the scandal that they're giving, right? If the right eye scandalizes you, pluck it out and throw it away. Remember that the fathers, the fathers do not recommend people plucking their eyes out and throwing them away. When they comment on that passage from sacred scripture, they do not recommend cutting off your right hand and throwing it away. None of the fathers says, actually, Christ is telling you, pluck your eye out and throw it away, cut your hand off and throw it away. All of the fathers say that our Lord is trying to stress to you the gravity of sin, and that as unthinkable as it, as, as it should be to you, and as sinful as it would be against the, uh, the, the commandment of God, the, the, you know, the uh, fifth commandment, to do this, this grave injury to yourself, I mean, ordinarily, doing such a thing uh, would be uh, mortal sin, you know, against the fifth commandment. So um, they're saying that learn from this, what they call hyperbole, that our Lord is telling you don't even think of sinning because you wouldn't think of plucking your eye out. No sane person would. You wouldn't think of cutting your hand off. No sane person would think of doing that, except for extraordinarily great to save the the whole body, you know. Uh, to save the life. Um, so you should not even th- consider the possibility of uh, mulling over the eventuality of committing mortal sin. You know, it should be that uh, abhorrent to you, you know. And uh, that's what the fathers actually say. So, um, you know, I, I, there's another side to this question here that I, I'm afraid if we give arguments that are, are a little bit open to interpretation, they will be, and people are going to come and argue argue a certain points. Mm-hmm. Say, well, that doesn't apply, and that doesn't apply. So, uh, I, my, my point is that with regard to the church and its hierarchy, there's there have been libraries worth of material written by the church, uh, fathers, theologians, and so on, over all these centuries. Um, and the question that, that comes down with Francis and Sedevicantism and anti-Sedevicantism or Sedeplatism or Sedeocupatism, whatever you want to call it, um, it, it simply really comes down to a matter of whether Francis can or cannot be the Pope. Um, can, it, can or cannot be the, the vicar of Christ on earth. And we have to go by what you know how he was elected and by whom and and and, and you know whether they he was legitimately elected, and then beyond that whether or not he could hold the office of the papacy, based upon what he has what said and what he's done. You know, and there are those who look at the whole process, and uh, they they have arguments going right on down the line, and they're all canonical arguments basically. Um, so, um, you know, in other words, in this gentleman's mind, it, it seems very simple. This says, Gregory says this, uh, Christ says that in sacred scripture, therefore, 
pluck them out and toss them off, you know. But it's a little more complex than that when you actually start reading the fathers about that passage about the eye and the, and the hand. Gotcha. And uh, you start interpreting the meta metaphor, you know. I will uh, just close the whole point with this. Uh, I mean, there are those who who argue the point one side and argue the point the other. In my estimation, for what it's worth, those who um, those who argue the pro sedibicantist side of things are horrified by what these uh, post-conciliar pontiffs have done. They recognize them as popes of the Novus Ordo, the popes of the new, new order. So if you ask a city of a contest, is Francis the Pope? He could easily say, well, of course he's the Pope. Everybody knows he's the Pope. <clears throat> it's a question, so you recognize him as a, as a Catholic Pope. Well, no, no, he's not a Catholic Pope. He's a, he's a Pope of the Novus Ordo. That's what he says. You know, he, he accepts the Novus Ordo. He accepts all the changes. He says that the changes are themselves unchangeable. He's constantly changing them, <laughs> but he says that the reforms are irreformable, uh, that their reforms, right, Vatican II, their reforms are irreformable, mm -hmm. and this has been labeled by uh, Paul VI as the new order, the Novus Ordo. It's been consecrated, christened, uh, launched as the, the new order, and so uh, it is the new order of religion. Uh, and I believe that Francis and the rest of them were all exactly what they professed to be. They are popes of the Novus Ordo. But I do not believe the Novus Ordo is the Catholic faith. I don't believe the Novus Ordo is the Catholic religion. And so in saying that I believe that Francis is a pope, I believe he's the pope of a Novus Ordo, not a Catholic pope, not the vicar of Christ on earth. I think most Sainte-Bacontists would say, well, yeah, you can say that. That, that. that expresses pretty much what I have in mind, you know. Um, but then you have some who say, this is not a matter of my my belief and my my estimation of things, my logical conclusion. This is a matter of faith. This is a matter of dogma. Why? Because I'm so convinced that it's true. It can't not be true. It absolutely has to be true. And there's no argument about it. It's just it's just true. Either you accept this as a fact. Uh, and you can be a traditional Catholic, or you do not accept it as a fact, and you can't be a traditional Catholic. That's the dividing line with them, you know. But the Catholic faith is a lot about a lot more than that. There's a lot more to the real traditional Catholic faith than that. And uh, I would just say to them that you know, no one uh, that no matter how convinced you or I may be that Francis cannot be the vicar of Christ on earth, that he's not a Catholic pope, I'm even more certain that you're not, and I'm not. The Pope, and we and I cannot pronounce a dogma of faith. And so, um, you know, you cannot elevate your logical conclusion, your theological conclusion, to the level of a dogma. And just say anybody who doesn't agree with me is not a Catholic. Now, those who are the anti anti state of accountists seem to me to be motivated by a certain almost terror that if they were to even admit the possibility of Sainte-Bacontism, that they would somehow be betraying Christ, betraying his promise, betraying the church, that they would be casting the church into this terrible no-man's land and basically undo the entire Catholic Church. That they actually think that uh, based upon that question of whether Francis, let's say, is a pontiff, is a Roman pontiff, 
the vicar of Christ on earth. On that question, the entire uh, truthfulness of the Catholic religion hangs by that thread. And for them to even acknowledge the possibility that it that it could be otherwise, that maybe he's not, maybe he's not the Pope. It's as though it's the undoing of the entire Catholic religion in their mind. I can see why they would be terrified if they thought that way. Uh, they're wrong, obviously. They're wrong. <laughs> I believe they're wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but I, I really see a kind of almost. Uh, uh, terror in dealing with them, a horror of the idea because of the consequences that they see to admitting this and why they are so horribly anti-Vicantist that they, they, they consider the city of Vicantist to be the, uh, the devil himself, the, the, the most terrible attackers of the Catholic Church today. And, uh, you know, I would just say to them, look, you have to realize, you have to, you have to admit, I think you, you just have to admit, that the reason there are city of accountants today, and there are people saying these things, because of what your Francis has done, what he's doing right now, uh, what your, uh, you know, all your Novus Ordo Popes all have done, you know, going back to Paul VI and John XXIII, what they have done is put people in this position where they just can't see how they could possibly be Catholic Popes. Because they've attacked the church, uh, they've attacked souls, and uh, so much of what Francis is, is doing is attacking Christ Himself, the very person of our Lord. Um, and so people are just reacting to that. So if you, if you're going to get upset with anybody, don't get upset with the people who are scandalized by what they're doing. Get upset with the people who are causing the scandal, and they're wearing white robes and they're living in the Vatican. It's a good time. Uh, that's the issue. That's what they should be acknowledging. You know? But uh, on the other hand, I would also t say to them, look, the, the, the truthfulness of Christ, obviously, and the, the, the claim of the Catholic Church does not stand or, or, or fall on the basis of Francis or, or John Paul or Benedict or any of these, any of these people. Uh, there are those who think it does, that if these are, in fact, Roman pontiffs, and these are true vicars of Christ, they would say, okay, then Christ's promise has failed. They, they have the other side of the issue. They say these men can't be true popes, can't be the vicar of Christ on earth, because they've contradicted the doctrines and doctrines of the faith. So how can they possibly be vicars of Christ on earth? If we were to admit that they are, we are the ones who are attacking Christ. We're the ones who are saying the Catholic Church is basically washed up. That the promise of Christ means nothing. That a pope can say and do these things. And it's perfectly okay. You know, he remains the vicar of Christ on earth, even though he's, he's manifestly apostatized from the Catholic faith, because that's what people are getting from Francis. You know? So, in any case... Um, you know, both sides are taking that issue. Well, you know, if if I if 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 I admit that you're right, I'm I'm basically saying that the Catholic faith uh, is a fraud. Both sides are going at it with that with that approach, and uh, it's a terrible situation we're in right now because of that. Um, the fact is, though. Um, uh, you know, especially with regard to the 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 the, the, the dogmatic anti-Sainte-Vicatus, I would just tell them, look, you, you know, you are, 
you're operating uh, on this this fear that if the, if there's any question about Francis, the rest of them being true Roman pontiffs, that the Church, that Christ Himself seemingly has failed. Uh, I bl- I believe you're wrong. I don't mm-hmm. see that being true. Um, I told you the case of uh, going to uh, Regent University and addressing the uh, group of. Uh, uh, what was it? It wasn't the Newman Club, Colonel Newman Club, not even Thomas More Club. It's been a, quite a while, I must say. And uh, the Catholics who were there in this ocean of um, fundamentalist Protestantism, Regent University, they were in the law school. And we're talking, I'm talking to a group of about 30 people there, including one of the law professors there, I guess a constitutional law professor, who was a pretty tough questioner. He didn't say a word. I was disappointed. I wish you would have. But in any case, um, as I'm talking about some of the things that have been done and why they are problematic with the Novus Ordo, the gentleman who was sitting across from me, I mentioned this sometime before, who was uh, uh, getting his uh, doctorate in law that very year, he's graduating. As it turns out he was valedictorian that year for the Regent uh, University Law School, Novus Ordo Catholic, conservative. They were all very conservative. They had to be. Um, Otherwise, they would have lapsed into the Protestant ocean, <laughs> you know. But they still were determinedly Catholic. And uh, as I was talking, the, the gentleman, as I was sitting basically across the table from me, just said, uh, he began to shake his head. And he said, if I thought there was anything wrong with Vatican II or John Paul II, I think I'd lose my faith. And I, I thought to myself, how sad, how sad that his faith in Christ, his faith in the Catholic Church, Depends upon Vatican II and John Paul II, and that's what it's come down to now. Um, and you wonder, well, what is the foundation of your faith if, if, if you lose your faith? Because if you found out that Vatican II was a, a rogue council, right? Which it was, I mean, you know, clearly. And um, it, was, it was actually hijacked. Look in history, you see the, the case of councils, you know being declared subsequently robber councils, rogue councils, and so on, because they were hijacked by the enemies of the faith, as this Vatican II was. Or John Paul II with his uh, Catholic Woodstock uh, youth days around the world, you know, with nuns dancing obscenely with uh, priests, and who, who, well, you know, their clergy there, in front of the, in front of the, the students, the young people gathered there. I mean, uh, how, how could someone in his position not realize there's something wrong here? Sooner or later, he's going to have to face the reality that there's something very wrong here. And I just hope by that time he's unraveled this, this confusion he has about the nature of the faith and the nature of the church, so his faith finds its way to the truth and isn't lost in the process. Mm-hmm. And Father, we, we, we often hear that argument that, that if, if they're the current Pope Francis is not actually a real Pope, not actually a real Vicar of Christ, and somehow Christ's promises have failed. But where did Christ ever say that we would always have a Pope every day, every every month, every single year, throughout all of history? Christ never said that. His promise no, no. was the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Mm. And it doesn't take, uh, I mean, you've made this point before, where where uh, in, in years past that there have been interregnums of, of several years, I believe, oh, well, yeah. three years or so. So if the, the church can survive for that long of that, that period of time, why could they not conceivably 
survive for a longer period Even of time. Twice, uh, ten times, or thirty times, as long as long as God wishes it to be. I mean, exactly. Yeah, and there have been many occasions where parts of the world the church has continued uh, operating when she's been cut off from communication with the Holy See, but she just continues in the faith. So the the church um, always has a head in heaven. That's Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Uh, he has a vicar here on earth. There have been 200 and, what, 80, 270, 80 times, something to that effect, 260 times, when there was a, a, a in a interregnum, when there was no living pope. And everyone knew that. Um, but the church remains the church, even without that. You know, Christ, Christ is the head of the church, always remains. Uh, that is unshakable. Um, so, uh, again, I think it's a it's a poor understanding of the nature of the church which gives rise to these um, these fears. But I think they are operating on fear, and uh, it, it's a, it's a, a misled fear. And I'm hoping that in rational discussions, if people can get together and have serious, thoughtful discussions about these things, without mutual recrimination and calling each other uh, by names, you know, that we can actually make some progress in this. But the feelings are running so high and the fear is running so so high that it's very difficult for them to have a, uh, a rational, thoughtful, charitable discussion about it. Because the, the, the state of Vicantis, the dogmatic state of Vicantis on the one hand, and the state of Vicantis and the anti-state of Vicantis on the other, uh, would much rather have a food fight it seems that actually have serious discussions about the nature of uh, these these problems. Anyway, um, getting back to our, our writer here, uh, interesting, very interesting point he raises here. I, sh I see he's done some serious thinking about it. He's made some connections, and uh, you know, I, I, I would say that the points he's made are worthy of consideration, mm -hmm. but they're part of a much larger question right now. Yeah. Not not the complete answer, but they may well be a factor. Father, if, if we could finish up real quick with this email, he has one one final point here at the end where he talks about the uh, it, during the, the visions of Fatima when the Blessed Mother showed the vision of hell to the three children, and she told them to pray for those most in need so that they may be saved from hell. So they ask here: Are those most in need, in fact, those who can lead multitudes with them to hell? those who can do the most damage. So based on St. Gregory, that would mean the blinded, heretical, or erroneous bishops, and especially the, blind, the blinded pope. It could very well be, especially those most in need. I mean, I, I would, if he's saying that he regards Francis as being a soul most in need of God's mercy, I would absolutely <laughs> totally agree uh, because of the responsibility he has for the scandal he gives, yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, so when I mean I'm, I'm interpreting what Our Lady meant when she taught those right. Uh, actually, was it the angel who taught that, uh, or was it uh, the Blessed Mother who actually taught? I'm sorry, I'm having a brain freeze here. But in any case, those are the words that come to us from Fatima. We've been mm -hmm. taught to pray that, mm -hmm. and um, we uh, we are interpreting Our Lady's words there in a certain way. Um, but I cannot say infallibly that this is what she was thinking and this is what she meant mm -hmm. when she said this. All I know is that when I pray those words, I pray them 
with the understanding that her intentions be fulfilled in in praying that prayer. So I want her wishes fulfilled when she when she has us praying those words. Definitely, Father. He says here that uh, and when he when he goes through uh, the, these types of questions to others. Uh, people often tell me that criticizing the Pope is not your job. God doesn't need your advice. To which he answers that God already gave advice, and he uh, provides some of the quotes from St. Matthew's Gospel that, that we referenced earlier here. Right, well, we're not pretending to that, see even that. We're not pretending to give advice, and he knows that. That's what he's <laughs> saying. I mean, he's essentially saying, I'm, I'm not trying to give God advice. I'm just trying to understand what the truth is, that's all. So, I mean, even that answer of people, it's totally off base. It's, right. it's meaningless. It doesn't respond to, to the issue at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a glib thing to say, but it doesn't help. Yeah. Um, is it not our position to criticize the Pope? It, it, is, it is, in fact, a very Catholic thing to criticize the Pope when the Pope is himself a blaspheming God. Yeah. yeah, the Church has never been silent in a case like that. Hey, look, whoever writes that, okay, it's not your place to criticize the Pope, right? It's just a matter of, uh, you know, just humbly accepting. Tell St. Paul that. Yeah. You know, when you get to the pearly gates, you know, ask to, to have a, a little interview with St. Paul and, and tell him that, you know, and see what he has to say about that. Uh, he was the first man to stand up in front of everyone and challenge St. Peter because of the scandal he was given. And at that time, Peter was, was the victor of Christ on earth. So that's the example we have in sacred scripture. So he wants to argue with that. Let him go ahead. But, I mean, Tom, this is typical of the kind of stuff you get from... From instead of rational, thoughtful arguments, you get you just get these glib things that are thrown off by people. Sedevacantus, but mostly the the so-called anti-sedevacantus, they throw these things off just to shut down any possible discussion of reality. And uh, these are the very things that that make things worse. They don't help. Yeah. Well, according to, to Francis, there's not really any. Uh reality anyway, you know, in his, his recent comments on climate change where he said that if you don't believe in climate change, you need to go ask the scientists, you know, and that kind of implies that, okay, I guess there's no objective truth. Spoken like a real modernist. Spoken like the modernists have, the, uh, the, the scientists have the ultimate answer. And I mean, he writes an encyclical about the whole question, so he's a scientist. Yeah. So why didn't he just say, okay, instead of writing this long, boring encyclical about the subject, I'm just going to actually tell you to go read this book by a scientist on the subject and save yourself the trouble of reading my Laudato Si. Um, you know, the man is a, is a modernist to in every fiber of his being. If you looked at his DNA, I mean, it, it would be totally modernist. <laughs> um, he is steeped in modernism. He is born and bred in modernism. He's uh, basically the test tube baby of modernism. He's just produced like that, as it were, in a kind of laboratory of modernism. And uh, it's horrible, the things he says. Uh, uh, everywhere he turns, promoting socialism, promoting Marxism, um, uh, blaspheming our Lord, blaspheming our Blessed Mother. And, uh, and yet you have people who simply, well, you know, say that, well, you know, is that our job to criticize? Well, then I, I, you know, rather than argue with that statement, I would just say, fine, go, go, go tell St. Paul that and see how he, see how he uh, answers you. Definitely. He already did. Yeah. In the Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul already gave his answers to that question. 
Father, real, real quick in closing, just because we've had this email for some time now, could you briefly tell us the difference between dogma and doctrine? Briefly. Briefly. Well, Tom, you're asking, that's kind of funny because you're asking me to briefly say anything. <laughs> and uh, some say that that is not possible, but I shall endeavor briefly to okay. say it. Um, and I'm going, to simpl- I'm going to oversimplify it, okay, just for the sake of brevity, okay? Uh, dogma is what is defined solemnly by the Catholic Church as dogmatic truth, okay? It, it, it's what obliges us to, uh, to um, accept belief uh, by divine Catholic faith, uh, divine and Catholic faith, which is defined by the supreme authority of the Church, okay? Um, such that if one were to not deny the truth, they'd be heretic. Okay. Now, um, doctrine uh, includes the dogmas, but it includes things that have not actually been defined, solemnly defined, ex cathedra by the Church. I mean, we have the, um, the ordinary magisterium of the Church, which is the teaching Church throughout the centuries, uh, the moral universality of the bishops who are in union, uh, you know, with the Holy See uh, throughout throughout time uh, in, 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 with, with popes who have really been faithful and have taught uh, the true faith and have held the line and not taught modernism and so on. You have this unity of bishops throughout the ages fighting heresy, condemning heresy, saying what is true and saying what is false. And so there are certain things that are Catholic doctrines that have never been defined. For example, the presence of guardian angels, the fact that you have a guardian angel, I have a guardian angel. Um, It occurs as a statement of our Lord in sacred scripture that the angels of the children always behold the face of God in heaven. So to scandalize them, you know, is a very grave matter here. And uh, it would be better for someone to be uh, cast into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than to be guilty of giving scandal to a young, innocent soul. Our Lord mentions the the presence of guardian angels at that time. Uh, Throughout the sacred scripture, we we see that God assigns angels to specific tasks, to specific peoples. Um, It is actually a, a, I believe it is a common position of the theologians and the the bishops of the church throughout the centuries. it might have actually a higher a higher level of dogmatic authority or doctrinal authority than that, actually. It might be considered a sententia chapta, actually, not just a sententia communis. Anyway, as I said, I was going to try to be brief. And, 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 uh, but that we have guardian angels. But the Church has never formally defined that as a dogma of faith, okay? The Church hasn't defined, if you read the Catechism, the Church hasn't dogmatically defined every statement in the Catechism. She hasn't had to. Why? Because the, the bishops and the faithful have believed those things. Generally, when the Church issues the dogmatic statement, it is to meet a, need, meet a specific need of the Church at that time. The Church is resting uh, comfortably and securely in her faith, in guardian angels, whatever it might be, uh, in, in the existence of purgatory and so on, the church doesn't need to make dogmatic statements about it. Only when it's called into question. And you will find in history that is when the church has spoken up. And she's taken it very seriously. She's uh, called counsel. She has uh, serious deliberations. And uh, finally, it is pronounced, you know, by uh, the Holy See, by the Pope himself, on behalf of all the church. 
uh, and binding the consciences of all the faithful. If you look at the statement of the infallibility uh, of the Pope um, in speaking ex cathedra at Vatican I, you'll find the narrow terms that are expressed there which constitute a dogmatic definition by the Holy See of the extraordinary magisterium. Very narrow terms, okay? All of these conditions are met. When this, when this is done, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, then, these are dogmatic statements of the extraordinary magisterium. But the church, uh, believing throughout the centuries also, is making statements. And, and she is, uh, in a sense, defining her doctrine. So that uh, it, is, it is very wrong and uh, contrary to the faith for someone now, for example, to deny the existence of guardian angels. If, it, if a traditional Catholic priest were to get up in a pulpit and say, you know, the belief in guardian angels has never been defined, so I don't believe in that anymore, the people would react very swiftly and surely against it and say, that is not of the Catholic faith. You're not a traditional Catholic uh, priest at all. And he, they'd be absolutely right in that. Even though that, has not, that is not a defined dogma of faith, they know it's true because the church has taught it all these centuries. That's doctrine. Cool. I hope that makes it clearer and not more obscure. So. No, I think so. That was good. Thanks okay. for being here tonight, Father. I appreciate well, it. I think that was, Tom, a, that was a great, great program. You're very your welcome. Yeah. Thank you. I want to attempt to be brief. <laughs> Sorry, hopefully it wasn't. It was not too bad. Too bad. Okay. Thank you. God bless you, man. You too. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.